Welcome to Ex Libris, the podcast that, with the help of the greatest writers around, champions libraries and bookshops. These are our society's safe spaces, particularly libraries. They are palaces for the people, free of charge, where everyone is welcome and nobody judged. Yet they are in peril and closing like never before. My name's Ben Holden. I'm a writer and producer and, more to the point, fed up of this state of affairs. So, during each episode of Ex Libris, I will be meeting a great author at a library or an independent bookshop of their choice, somewhere that has become resonant for them. And, I hope, after you listen to this episode, we'll feel special to you too. Few writers give me such consistent pleasure as Tessa Hadley. These are Zadie Smith's words, but I second them wholeheartedly. I'm a big fan, as are many other readers. Indeed, Hilary Mantel has observed that Tessa recruits admirers with each book. She is one of those writers a reader trusts. Damn right. And Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie calls her one of the best fiction writers writing today. Tessa Hadley is the author of three collections of short stories. That's how I first discovered her work, via those stories in the pages of the New Yorker magazine, to which she frequently contributes. She has also written six acclaimed novels, most recently, late in the day. Tessa lives in London and is Professor of Creative Writing at Bath Spa University. She has chosen, though, to meet today in Bristol at Redland Library, which she would frequent as a child. It's a handsome old place, built in the 1880s. It's faced a few challenges during recent years of austerity that have led to campaigns by friends groups for its preservation. But Redland has not buckled and stands proud. Indeed, today it's in scaffolding. They're doing some more works to keep it strong as ever. Like so many libraries up and down the land, it's a vital destination, a proper palace for the people. It has been for well over a century. Joining us with Tessa to put all of that into some context is local councillor Asher Craig, who also grew up visiting the library. Without further ado, let's head on in and get talking with them both. Tessa, Asher, thank you very, very much for joining us and meeting here in Redland Library. Tessa, I know it's a special place for you and you immediately chose it as the venue for today. Can you tell us what it signifies and perhaps also a bit of background, but Describe the place. It's a very striking library. Perhaps you could evoke it a little bit for our listeners. Built in the late 19th century, of sort of big, chunky red stone, and with handsome, great, grand windows letting in lots of light on the books inside. It's quite a tiny library, although books are small, so you can pack an awful lot of books into a small library exactly as I remember it from my childhood. You come in through the front door and both Asher and I, it was that metal door handle on the door that brought memories of long ago rushing back. You come in through the door and the children's section, I think it's still as it was, is laid out to right and left. And then ahead of you, up the stairs is the adult section, and this it's strange and haunting to be back here after a very, very long time. And we've found the team here have pulled some really beautiful photos, yeah. which I'll post online for anyone who's listening and wants to check them out. But they're very evocative. They're very handsomely framed. Someone knew what they were doing, but they, they evoke, again, a bygone era of this library. They're a little bit before my time, even. But it's wonderful in these photographs to look at all the men and women sitting, reading, with their hats on, in the women's cases, though I think the men have taken them off. And what spills out from these black and white pictures to me is the quiet of the library, which, as a child, is so important as you come in because you recognise this space set apart from the noise and bustle of the street outside and school. I used to come here every week with my school. We came in a crocodile, two by two, holding hands, and we were brought here every Friday afternoon, it seems to be in my memory. We all took out books, not just the bookish ones. Mm. Every child took out at least one book and brought it back the following week. Mm. And the sense that you entered this hushed, 
quiet space. I could see that could be scary if books weren't your thing and it wasn't your space. But I have to say I was such a bookish, shy child. So to me, it felt kind of like coming home, mm. coming into this respectful, absorbed quiet. That was really a place I wanted to be. Some sort of inner sanctum. Yes. yes. And a place that took reading so seriously put it at the centre of things. There was no commercial thing going on. There was no money being exchanged. Just thought and absorption in words inside books. Yes, and of course they still offer that sanctuary today. And it's still a very quiet space or somewhere that people can come into the warm Mm -hmm. and focus on whatever it may be. But it's obviously changed. In those photos, it looks quite stately and like a destination. The, the librarians at the front look like they're running some sort of department store <laughs> counter. Yes. The patrons look like they've sort of like put their Sunday best on. It's almost sort of a, going to church. Because the area really hasn't changed. I mean, Redland itself. And I was saying earlier that I've never revealed to everybody, <laughs> even in my time as a councillor, that both Redland and Cheltenham Road Library were my local libraries because I was brought up in Redland. And I was thinking about when you were talking about what things that were evoked. So I had that kind of deja vu moment when I was walking through the doors. Because when you're little, you know, the stairs, even though there are a few stairs, they seemed quite big. And I always remember being afraid to go into the adult section because we were so little, you're not allowed to go into the adult section. But I was a very early reader. I was reading maybe from about four or five. I just loved reading. And so I enjoyed our visits to the library. We'd all sit down quietly in the corner. We'd choose a book. The book would be read to us. And then we could right now you can go off and choose a book that you want to take out. And just the enjoyment of just, you know, the librarian opening the book putting their little stamp in there Mm. with the date in there to tell you when she, you you know, it was, yeah, it was just all part of that. So, yeah, I mean, everybody's journey is very different, but yeah, fond memories of Do you know, I used to do it at home. I used to have stick little sheets inside my, the few books I actually own. (laughs) And from somewhere had a date stamp and used to make little cardboard ticket holders. (laughs) That is a bit sad as a childhood play. It's It's very sweet. And did you, Tessa, come here at a similarly early age? And you you said you were coming here with your school, but was it part of the family routine? Yeah, it was. I can't really remember when I was coming with school set this once a week thing and then when it began to be with my family or whether it both coexisted I'm really not sure but certainly I've been here with family as well yes and th- was it this place that really fostered your love of reading as a as, yeah. and writing as well but was this where those seeds were sown for you wanting to become a writer or absolutely because we weren't really a bookish family at home we had books And my parents read, but they they weren't the sort of parents that said, oh, you have to do this, you have to read this person and this person. So I was free inside this building to pick and choose. And I, I really just devoured the children's books and used to take home this pile of five, I think we were allowed. And I can still remember the feeling unspoiled by adult criticism, because of course it's not so straightforward now, of just entering the new book, the, the first page like a threshold and you cross it and then you're inside, that excitement and thrill, which to me is, again, perhaps slightly sadly, sort of not surpassed by anything. And mixed up with that love of reading somewhere at some point, quite innocently, without any grandeur, thinking... I want to also make my own stories. So you know what's really interesting as you're speaking, Tess, I was trying to think about, well, what books did we even have in my home? Mm. And do you know something? We really didn't have any books. Mm. The only books that we had at my house was this beautiful Bible. It was huge, bound beautiful pictures and everything. Oh, I just love reading it yeah. or just looking at the pictures. I remember one, there's a specific picture in the Bible of one of Jesus's disciples and somebody who had been stabbed in the heart and you can see him being held by Jesus and they're trying to... Nothing. Yeah, so... Uh, reading that as a child <laughs> and taking yeah, that no, away. No, it was. Yeah. I remember all of that. And the other book was the dictionary, yeah. equally as big, yeah. huge, 
Those were the two kind of Wonderful. big staples. So and they, were, own, they were like the, the authority books were, in your house. They were. They? And do you know something? I, I, I've been thinking, I wonder what happened to it. Because obviously, you know, my parents have passed away. And I might go and Google and see if I can find yeah. something that looks like. But it was beautiful, like leather bound brown bible and gold embellished yeah, you know that's kind of and, and the leaves were gold embellished on mm. the side mm. and Lovely. i actually think that's a better beginning in books mm. than you go into a child's house now often they have a thousand books piled up mm. most of them unread you had one yeah. precious book with wonderful language inside it <laughs> exactly. and great pictures what's more exactly. in the beginning of mill on the floss maggie tulliver is reading a religious book they only have two or three books mm. in the house mm. And she is obsessed with certain pictures of devils and saints being martyred. Exactly yes, like you've been was, drawn yes, to exactly. that picture of violence. Exactly. And these feed the imagination. Mm. Well, that was it, because I think that's what made the words come to life yeah. when you were looking at the pictures. And then I would be trying to find the story that related to the yeah. picture, because maybe the story was a couple of pages away, because obviously they've put the leaves in. But, you know, I was really fascinated because I looked at the picture and then I wanted to know what is the story behind the yes. picture. So, yeah. So, yeah, my first kind of real excursion into reading and books was the Bible. Yeah. And then you could supplement it, obviously, with this most, place. Oh, yeah, most definitely. With all sorts. Most and definitely. Tessa, you found one or two books here that made a big impact on you and one or two also that perhaps the librarians were a little... Uh, oh, yes, that was a funny thing that happened. <laughs> When I was, I think, about 11 or 12, and I've been using the library for a long time, I borrowed a book called Young Mother. And I kind of didn't really, it was just one of my five for that week. But when I got home, I was slightly startled in my innocence to discover it was a very pious and solemn story about a girl who got pregnant and then had the child. And it, it's even the cover I can actually remember, sort of pastel and a girl with a tragic face, you know. <laughs> anyway, when I brought it back in, I was already embarrassed as I stood in the queue to hand the book yeah, back yeah. to the librarian. Shuffling I remember being forward. slightly, yeah. yeah, shuffling forward and feeling a bit hot under the collar. She took this book away from me. And then she sort of turned to the other librarian and murmured something to her. And then they both mm. took it into the back room. And it just <laughs> felt as if I'd been found out in my salacious imagination. And then she brought it back and said, she was sniffing it. And she said, definitely smells of paraffin. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out it was because my dad had had the paraffin tank from the oil heater that we had at home in the back mm. of the car with the book but I just I still to this day think it wasn't just that yeah. it was her reacting to yeah. me reading that the book fumes of the fumes of transgression exactly mm. yes so which books really made an impact I think I think you've talked about swallows and amazons but yes. From this library, are there some that, s yeah. that well, stand out? I can almost seem to see them, and I did love the books that there was a whole series of, because that was like once you liked it and you got yeah. into it, there were loads of them. So mm -hmm. Swallows and Amazons, which were truly huge for me, Anne of Green Gables. Oh, did you read I that? Read, I, oh. I love oh. Anne of Green Gables. We probably yeah. have the same <laughs> book we in our hands, Asha. We could have had the same book. Oh, love that story. I loved it so mm -hmm. much mm -hmm. and cried about it, of course. Of and, course. you know, not just the first book, but even it never occurred to me that they probably got less good mm -hmm. as they went on, mm -hmm. as Definitely. they scraped the bottom mm -hmm. of the barrel. But I just took them all in. I also remember books from the non-fiction side. There was a great series called... The young Victoria, I mean, the young wolf, the young, you know, all great figures mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. British history as we understood it then. Yeah. I mean, probably I should think wince making now in their <laughs> inappropriateness, but filling out the shapes mm -hmm. of time mm -hmm. and history and giving one a first sense yeah. of different eras. Yes. And of the past. Yes. That's, that's one of the things we get from our reading more than anything, I think, is and a sense you, of the past. And, and I think that's one of the things that I love about reading, just getting lost in it yeah. and just the imagination and it takes you to the places yeah. and, oh, yeah. Well, that's the other special thing about libraries is that they're a place where you can be alone together. And yeah. you can, mm. they're full of contradictions, mm. nice contradictions mm. in that sense. And you can get lost in your own world, yeah. but there's a, they're a safe space. That, as in this wonderful photograph, yeah. all these people are not sitting talking. <laughs> they are all alone and together. Yet and yet, 
They are a community of readers yes. together, mm-hmm. sharing yeah. but private. And here we are, however many years later, yeah. with you two who grew up coming here and mm-hmm. we're in the Holding library. Holding the yeah. same volume of Anne of Green Gables, which I love. <laughs> yeah. We'll go and have a look in a minute. Too, oh yeah, let's there. see if we can find it. And that was the other thing. I also liked... You know, you had the little drawers where they had the details of the books and where you could find them. And I used to love opening the drawers and just flicking through the little cards. And then, yeah, the card index system and kind of flicking through that and knowing where to go and find the book that you were looking for. Yeah, Because all of that is about... Authority and yeah. power in a good yeah. way, isn't it? it but early, means... but early computer days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I think those cards were more, more enchanting somehow yeah, than flicking mm. through a computer screen. No, 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 no that's that what I was saying. I, I loved yeah. it because it was, you know, you know, Physical. you have to go to mm. A to D or wherever, yeah. and then just kind of flicking through. It. Yeah, loved yeah. all of that. Yeah. <laughs> and we talked about the past, and Tessa, you're a bit of a laureate, if you ask me, in, in terms of our relationship with the past. You've, you've, you've looked at it closely. So many of your novels and short stories, but late in the day, your newest novel mm-hmm. is very much in that zone. It tells the story of four friends, two married couples, and their intertwined relationships as a quartet, as well as their children. Mm. But you flip between the past and, and the present. Yeah. But do you want to, for anyone who has not yet had the joy of reading it, do you want to just give us a little snapshot and perhaps, if you don't mind, read something from it? Sure. Yes, it is these two couples. And my first idea when I conceived the novel before I started writing was that I would run it chronologically and begin with these four in their 20s, then have them in their 30s, then in their 40s. Then I thought, a novel just can't be a line. It has to also be a circle. I have to have a big thing that sort of pulls all this together, and I knew one of my four had to die in that Mm. slightly merciless way that writers do with their characters. (laughs) And once I knew that he had to die, I've made the nicest one of the four die, I think, the sweetest man, sorry. I knew that I had to put his death right at the beginning of the book, that it would feel really malevolent to write the whole story and make you involved with the characters and then suddenly kill one of them. that, Mm. That doesn't work for me. So I had to put begin at the beginning when these characters are in their 50s, one of the four drops dead. And then I had to do this thing that is a little bit tricky structurally, but I think I got away with it, where we're partly running the story in their 50s, in the present, with the fallout from the death and what it does to the three left behind and how they remake their Mm. relationships around his absence. And then I also dip back into their youth, into their 30s and into their 40s. So it, it's a little bit complex in no, the time structure. The but... non-linear structure is brilliant. It works, it works really, really well. Right. And the title of the novel is, again, redolent of the past. It's, there's a sort of autumnal yeah. quality to it. Well, I think I've always been interested in that. It's funny, even when I was a child, and it was probably because of reading, I would look at an old person on the bus and I would think... They were young ones. And I've always had that layered perception. I talked to my grandparents intently, almost interrogating them about their childhood and their youth. So I've always been fascinated in the different layers of people's lives Mm. and how they unfold and have youth inside age. So I can't resist writing about it. It (laughs) seems to make the present so much thicker. It's quite unusual, quite perspicacious or perceptive of you as a young person to think of someone as having a youth. It's funny, isn't it? I don't know why. I mean, I'd almost say it was a bit obsessive and odd, but (laughs) that's how I was made somehow. So shall I read a little bit? That would be amazing. And and It's not particularly relevant to anything we've been discussing, but it's in the present part of the book. So, and this is Christine and her husband, Alex, is still alive. Alex is not here He's gone up to Glasgow. He's on his way home. Actually, something momentous is going to happen on his way home. Not an accident, not, but something that will change the dynamic between these remaining three and sort of break the pattern that exists. But really, this is just a passage about waiting. Her perception was a skin stretched taut, prickling with response to each change in the light outside as it ran through the drama of its sunset performance at the end of the street in a mass of gilded pink cloud. 
when eventually the copper beach was only a silhouette cut out against the blue of the last light, Christine pulled down the blinds, put on all the lamps, turned her awareness inwards. From half past ten, she began to think she heard Alex's car draw up outside. Each time, she braced herself. The more a homecoming was anticipated, the more disconcerting the actuality was prone to be. She knew that. The arriving one walked into a shape prepared for him, not actually his own. Just because she was relieved to be free of Lydia and looking forward to seeing Alex, the reality of him would be an affront. He wouldn't fit into her preparations or even notice them, would arrive burdened with purposes of his own, breaking into the tension of her waiting. Men didn't care anyway about clean sheets or scented soap, both of which she's put out for him. It would be better, really, if she watched telly and forgot she was waiting. But in the summer night, the spell of her expectation was too strong. She lost herself inside short passages of her novel, then couldn't proceed because they affected her too much. She dropped the book and looked about her restlessly, filled up her glass again. It was only once midnight had come and gone that panic lifted up in Christine's chest like a great bird between one moment of its not occurring to her to worry and the next, when she was certain something must have happened. He'd said he might be home by ten o'clock, hadn't he? No doubt the traffic was bad, and he wouldn't have called to let her know because Alex never used his phone while he was driving, and also he despised that whole infantile obsession with calling, needing to be in touch at every moment. Yet her imagination, working outside her control, began to conjure disasters that were more awful for being indefinite. The poised perfection of her scene was spoiled, a mockery, and yet she couldn't possibly go to bed. Sleeplessness there would be worse. And anyway, he would surely arrive any minute and there wouldn't have been anything to be afraid of after all. When he did arrive, she would never forgive him, she thought, for putting her through this. In interludes of respite, she forced her awareness down into her novel, then awoke from its dream in palpitations of dread. She hadn't eaten anything since cake at lunchtime. She'd waited to have something with Alex, so the white wine she'd been drinking had given her a headache. There was nothing to think about except the worst. For a long time she wouldn't let herself call his phone, then she tried it and found it was switched off. Her helpless fear was a paralysis hollowing her out, and yet was probably absurd. She kept hearing a car whose drone seemed familiar, which then droned past. Or a car would park in the street outside, a car door slam. Her heart would lift in a paroxysm of relief. But Alex didn't come. This madness of anxiety was her own to bear. And at any moment Alex would turn up, it would have all been for nothing. But by two o'clock she couldn't help herself. She rang Lydia. She told herself Lydia often stayed awake late reading, and indeed she picked up the phone almost at once, spoke into it warily. Christine knew there was a handset on the bedside table at Garrett's Lane. She poured out her distress, so glad to talk to someone, Lyd, I'm so really, really sorry to call at this time of night. I know it's completely selfish of me, but I'm so stuck I don't know what to do. I don't know who else to call. I don't want to bother the children. It's Alex. He's not back yet. I don't know where he is. He said he'd be back by ten and he isn't here and his phone's turned off. I've got myself worked up into a state imagining every kind of disaster. Do you think he's had an accident? Lydia's voice was hesitant, but not as if she'd been woken from sleep. Oh, Chris, she said. Don't worry, he's all right. I know it's stupid, he'll be fine, but I am worrying. Don't worry, though, really. Alex is here. She could hardly take in what she heard at first. What do you mean he's there? What's he doing there? Why hasn't he rung me? I don't know what to say. I don't know how to tell you. It was as if dark forms crowded suddenly into the room around Christine. Recognition was so violent. One stark and ghastly white face showed in the mirror. She didn't know her own self for a moment. Lydia ploughed on as if bemused by wonders. Everything's so strange, Chris. I'm so sorry. Thank you. It's an absolutely stunning 
passage is very dramatic as well. You read that so beautifully. But I was blown away by the sort of Jamesian shifting lights and the sort of stretching of time in that interior world. But then you explode it late in the day, like the title, for this person in terms of their lives. Mm. Late in the day, these lives are changing. Mm. But At also, a point when they hadn't thought they were going to, when you think yes. you're settled and you've got what you've got and that's how it is. Yes. But the timing of the passage as well. There's a lovely moment later on when the younger character says, up until now my life's been so straightforward, almost too straightforward, I wish you'd known me in the past. And of course we do know them in the past because yeah. you flip back to those lovely ironies. But here you have a passage where the present is punching through. Mm in such an emphatic mm. way. Yes, because one never wants to just celebrate the past as if it's a kind of lavender-scented, better time. It was only the present then. Yes. It was violent and it punched through then. And then all those things, they build bricks of ourselves and bricks of our story. And it, it amounts finally to, if we live a full life, mm. it amounts finally to a building a place, a whole story, if we get given the whole story, which yes. not everybody does, of course. Well, you've left me completely fascinated, so I am definitely purchasing your book. Oh, oh you no, must. I don't need to purchase, I just need to take it out of the library. You could take it from the library, <laughs> yes. And yeah. in fact, I've just, to be completely sordid, <laughs> I've just had my lovely PLR payment, which is public mm. lending right payment. Yes, it's a very important moment Very for important oh. for authors, a great victory for authors and very valuable. Mm. Is that a new... It's, yeah. it's quite a long time now, but it was for... Oh, I'm afraid I'm not going to know which decade it was mm. achieved in, mm. but every author is paid an allotted amount according to how many times their book is borrowed. Yes, so interesting, because my daughter worked for PRS, the Performing Rights oh, Society, thing. so it's yes, exactly absolutely. the same kind, same thing. Well, yes. well, that's yeah, brilliant. Well wonderful. done. I know. Oh, well done. Yeah, I got mine as well. <laughs> Which, it's amazing reading, yeah. actually, seeing... It's yeah, very, uh, it is. It's really lovely yeah. to see each title, how many yeah. people take them out. And, of course, it invests in the most literal way, writers in libraries. I mean, of course, writers mm. want their books to be in libraries anyway, mm. more for better reasons. But it does. It gives a solid material connection between us and the books we write in yes. these places. Uh, does that also relate to kind of online reading? Yes, and it does all take into books account online digital that you can borrowing. buy through. Oh, excellent. Yes, well it does. They worked out a complicated yeah. system for that. And then there's also... there's ALCS, which is the Authors Licensing and Copyright mm -hmm, Society, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and wherever your books are used for copyright in teaching or anything yeah. like that, you also get a payment. Yeah. There is one, as we're on library books as well and borrowings, there is one library reference in Late in the Day that I spotted with my eagle-eyed library I lenses don't know on. that I can remember <laughs> it. I can help but notice it, but one of your I think it's Christine or Lydia, I forget, sorry, which character, but one of your characters says they compare people to library books and say people aren't available, are they, to be taken out and given back like a library book, date stamped, which is great and completely right, of course. <laughs> but again, it's that sort of conditionality of life or the provisionality of, yeah. of how time passes and our relationships, how they evolve, which you so beautifully explore in the book. Well, I love both Asha and I being so taken as little girls yeah. by the bureaucracy of the library. Yeah, the stamp. <laughs> the stamp, well, yeah. the, the card index, yeah, the tickets. Yeah. And obviously, I suppose the irony is that what you're doing inside a library is crazy and free and you can travel anywhere in your head and you can go there mm -hmm. but there is this other side of it this controlling side you know <laughs> so I suppose that's what my yes, character is yes. saying there that totally. the mm. crazy and free mm. with people is great and the trying to control it and thinking you own people and you've got their card in the index or yep. their card is in your ticket mm -hmm. yeah that's not yeah. all do you know just as you're talking it, it's just these little snapshots that are coming through. and I, Because do you remember they used to, it was those little 
things that you slotted into mm. the library. Oh, it was just... It was a good system. It was, it was great, very appealing. Was they took system. the little thing out of the library book and, and put, put it in your ticket exactly. and put it in their box. Exactly. And I think on this photograph, mm-hmm. here is where those boxes were. They were all yes, held that's inside what I, Yes, that and I used to... Yeah. So the times where we used to sneak, you know, hopefully they weren't seeing, and I used to open up the drawers because I was just really fascinated, not just about the books, but yes, even the administratively, the, the bureaucracy. Yeah. and how it was yeah. managed and how yeah. it worked. Yeah. You know, a counselor in the making. Do, do you know something? Do you know something? I was sitting there thinking to myself, you know, where does it kind of come from? Yeah. Because, but yeah, I suppose I had no idea that my visits to the library... Were making would, those impressions. Would end up with me... Overseeing the management of yeah, the very said libraries I know. that I used but to visit as a child. But you were looking straight away at the system. You see, I did. You? I that did. It's it. terrible. That's where that. No, no. <laughs> but we need a system in order to have yeah, libraries, in order to get inside books that's and escape mm-hmm. and be free. And it's lovely listening to you both now, looking back, reminiscing, but seeing your. It's almost like you're looking at your childhood selves. Yeah, most definitely. Out in the library space, there yeah. a bit like your novels. Tessa, you know, the interplay between past, present, future and how we, they collide. Because the other thing that I used to do when I used to come to the library, we used to go to ABC White Ladies Road, the cinema, right? ABC Minus. Yeah, yeah, oh my God, and we used to sing. Oh my God, it was great. So, So every Saturday, you know, me and my brothers and sisters and all the children in and around the community, Redland, ABC White Ladies Road at the cinema mm-hmm. and they used to have uh, kind of like the children's yeah. I think was it between like 10 and it, Pretty 10 and 12 and very, rowdy. very chaotic very rowdy watch cartoons watching films it, it was just again another great escape and then after mm-hmm. you know we'd maybe run up here and come into the library and have a read and have a look at the this books. is how community is made mm-hmm. yes. yeah one other element of the novel Tessa is the again in terms of the generations but also the non-linear approach is the interplay between those generations in one moment one of the older characters says they're more puritanical than us this generation Mm. children again listening to you talk about you guys and your youth now of course this is a novel it's not your memoir so I, I get that it's not necessarily your opinion but I was quite struck by that and obviously there are three generations at play, I should say, yes. also because their elderly parents as well yes. are in the mix and they're fantastic characters there. But were you consciously wanting to sort of traverse the intergenerational dynamics and explore that a bit? Yeah. And again, honestly, I think that goes back to Anne of Green Gables, not so much Swallows and Amazons, which is one of those children's books fixed in a child time mm. where the adults are peripheral. They give permission, don't they, at the beginning of Swallows and Amazons. I don't know if you remember the telegram, but it's, it said, if not duffers, the mother telegrams to the dad who's away in the Navy, can the children go out on the boat? Mm. He replies, if not duffers, won't drown. If duffers, best drowned. Speaks from another era. Anyway, <laughs> enough of that. That's children's world. But Mm. Anna Green Gables wasn't. The reason one loved it was that it was a taste of the adult world Mm. in which Mm. children grew up, fell in love, got married and had children. Mm. And from early, I had a hunger for that. Again, this is like me looking at the old people and thinking they were young once. Mm. Um, A hunger for that generational thing so that, when I came to write my own books, I've always written about families. And the, yes. I think my very, very first book, Accidents in the Home, actually had a family tree at the beginning of it. As a reader, I love books with a family tree. And, so, again, the last three, four years, I have been looking at my own ancestry, mm. okay? Because my children keep saying to me, listen, Mum, you have actually done so much in your life. You need to write this down. Yes. People need to understand the history, what's happened in Bristol, yeah, what's happened in our life. You know, my parents died at an early age, so my children didn't grow up with their maternal grandparents. But I have all this information mm. in here, and I want to pass it on. And mm. actually, a couple of days ago, I was talking to my middle daughter, Khadija, and she says, Mum, do you know something? 
I mean, we've got snippets, but I don't think we've really sat down. And you've really told us everything there is about granddad and grandma and who we are and our history. And in doing my ancestry, I mean, you do get obsessed once you start. You yeah. somehow can't stop. And for me, it was a revelation because it has revealed that on my father's side, where I thought was a very small family, has actually turned out to be a flipping village, <laughs> you know, going back. Yes. And I yeah. also, my great, great, great grandfather is a white Irishman called, Irish, called really David good. Craig. Yeah. So that's Mar- where Craig yeah. comes from. That's where Craig, yeah, that's kind of yeah. where Craig comes yeah. from. But then going back, it's just been fascinating. And the most important sort of cornerstones or repositories for accessing those kinds of stories and preserving those stories uh, where we are today and these libraries and the archival service they offer local communities and preserving those stories so that we can all do it but Mm. also they're not forgotten. Yeah, exactly. And libraries are fundamentally really, really important and yes, the last couple of years have been quite testing for us here in the city but I'm glad we've kind of come through it and we're looking positively at how we can make libraries a real kind of hub, particularly in those areas of the city where the footfall or the use of libraries has actually gone down for the use of books, you know, kind of repository for books. Because somewhere like here, Redland, local councillors and obviously friends of library groups, very vocal groups. Yes. They, by the way, planted a beautiful herb garden, I noticed, on the way in as well. Oh, hats off to them too. I'll have a look at that. Two years ago, there was the whole thing about the £30 million hole that we had. I'm going to go politics now because I, I think it's important that people understand the journey. Yeah, do we, talk we, us through it because, I mean, it's heartening that Bristol hasn't closed. Like and we're not going to because I yeah. think there's this kind of view, oh, it's going to happen. You've only saved them up until a certain point. I got elected in 2016 and I understand that Back in 2015, the libraries had gone through a big consultation. I think they closed the library, what was the old library in Eastville, and that became a kind of community-run library. And they were just tinkering around the edges. But when our administration arrived, you know, we thought everything was rosy in the garden. And then, you know, Marvin calls a meeting and says, hey, there's a huge financial hole in the budget. Promises that were made around savings, Mm. had just been kicked into the long grass by the previous administration. And we were faced with this 30 million hole and we had to find some way of saving it. And and I think we did the sums and if we just wanted to make one cut, it would have meant getting rid of a thousand members of staff. That is the equivalent to how big a hole it was. And so obviously we had to look right across the whole organisation. We put the shutters down. Staff couldn't spend any money because we really needed to get to the bottom of what was happening and what we were going to do to steady the ship. It took nearly two years. It has Mm. The first two years of our administration was spent trying to kind of manage the huge deficit that we had. And I have to say, we've come out the other end. And we always said that what we've got to do is try and protect the most vulnerable and the most disadvantaged. But we do acknowledge that whatever we do, it's going to be painful for everybody in the city. But what we want to do is lessen the pain for those who are going to be impacted the worst. So, yes, we made some really difficult decisions. One of them, we were looking at the libraries, and I had responsibility for libraries. I was looking at the numbers, the footfall, you know, we have all of this information. And we were really looking at how we could kind of restructure the libraries. I talked to other counterparts in different cities. So listening to them, I was trying to come up with a model that would work. So maybe having a series of like super libraries and then, you know, the kind of hub and smoke model, but, you know, less is more kind of thing. I had no idea that it would unleash the beast. (laughs) And, you know, I talk about Bristol as being global, local and vocal. (laughs) And vocal being the the key word there. And obviously it just kind of unleashed this barrage. The idea that you might close some of these Yeah, of course. And I do get it, particularly from those who had a voice, because it was interesting that those who have a voice, who have the social capital to be able to kind of make the noise, come to the council, etc. But when you go to St Paul's, when you go to Hartcliffe, where there was hardly any footfall, you can see it for yourselves. So it was trying to look at a kind of different model, but then at the same time thinking, well, 
if we do take out libraries from those particular communities, then it'll be gone forever. So the one thing I will say is we do listen. You know, I'm somebody who listens. I'm poacher turned gamekeeper. So I come from the community. I get it. I'm Bristolian. So I understand how much people care about libraries. It just got to a stage where we've got to find a solution. But we also have to try and bring our libraries up to date because in some areas, the library or the building known as the library is the only escape for all mm. communities. There's no community centres. There are no yeah. sports centres. There's nothing. And Marvin put the funding back in and he said, OK, let's halt it. But we also have to look fundamentally at how a new strategy for the library service. So we're looking at still sustaining the 27 libraries as they are and the libraries being at the heart of that. And each library will be different. So there will be a whole set of services that will continue to be delivered. We had a series of conversations last year with the community. And as a result of that, again, thank you to the mayor, he found uh, another £110,000. So each Friends of Library group, we've allocated £1,000 to those groups do with it what you will. Then we have £3,000 that they can kind of bid into to develop programmes, ideas, projects, etc. Do you think that we want to make cuts? We want to invest, you know, but the budgets have been squeezed over the... We've lost 70% of the overall income of grants that used to come Mm, to the local authority over 10 years. So we've got less money, but the demand is ridiculously Mm. more. I have to commend you. It's great for Bristol that Mm. you haven't cut or closed no. any of those libraries yes. the no. trick of course is to ensure that you can maximize them if, as you're saying for the communities and you know it's so short-sighted we've traveled up and down the land going to different libraries and meeting librarians and authors and the word that often comes up is short-sighted mm, in yeah. terms of the closures mm. because it's myopic mm. in terms of the holistic mm. benefits but also the returns Most for yeah. communities and for councils Me- yeah. and jurisdictions or authorities for what is often seen as low-hanging fruit. And it's absolutely nuts Mm -hmm. to regard it in that way. So I'm very pleased that you haven't closed them. No, we we haven't closed them. them. And not only will we invest in what we have, but obviously there's a lot of new kind of developments happening. So there is also opportunities, you know, that some friends of groups and councillors have come to me and said, oh, Asha, do you know something? We want a new library. You could actually potentially close this one but build a brand new one which is you know again to try and increase a footfall mm-hmm. so having the library in an area where you know people go to the supermarket or go to the gp surgery oh i can nip into the library if you're just sitting standalone in the middle of nowhere then it obviously mm-hmm. the footfall is going to remain where it is so in some regards some may be replaced because we don't own every single library some of them we do lease the majority we do own but there is scope for us to also purposely design in yeah. n- new library spaces in some of the new developments that are happening at, over in Hartcliffe for example Hengrove Lock Lees will get a brand new library so the one that they have there that will move into kind of the new development so yeah it's important you know this was built in 1880 and of course these buildings need to be fit for purpose for 2020 (laughs) usage in terms of access etc at the same time you know this is such a striking building as Tessa was describing Mm. at the top Mm. of the conversation Mm. and such a beacon you know listening to you both what it meant to you growing up Mm. here we are again you've come back And there's got a real power to it, this building. And knowing when you do come in as a child or a young person that you are coming to a place that's been used by mm. your community for a hundred and mm. getting on for 150 yeah. years mm. has enormous significance. Space is not just a utility. Mm. Space is history yeah. and meaning. And if you come to this place where others have used it before you, and maybe your grandmother says, oh, I used mm. to go there, or your mother says, I used that. Yes, and I have to say in your novel, you know, the buildings and in your other novels, you know, like the past, the house in the past, that's such a big hub for that story. But in late in the day, you know, the studio, but also just listening to you describing that room as Christine waits, you know, your usage of the architecture physically and how it informs psychologically on your characters is always such a joy in your space is a metaphor you don't have to work at that it just is the spaces we inhabit are full of our story and what we're doing with them and what we feel about them it's history you know this building is history it's full of history evokes 
a lot of really good memories for me and everyone and Tess and everyone else who uses it. So I get it. <laughs> I, d- I definitely get it. Yeah, we know we can hear that yeah. coming yeah. through loud and clear. Yeah. Well, as this is a podcast about libraries mm-hmm. and bookshops, I always like to ask my guests without wishing to pry <laughs> how you choose to organise. And obviously you quite enjoyed the cataloguing when you were kids but how do you and tessa you even were catalog literally a literally sort of mini librarian at home mini playing, librarian, playing yes. librarian letting my brother yeah. borrow books but making <laughs> sure he looked after them well and books have obviously become your life's work so begs the question how you choose to organize your reading life i mean one of the weird things that happens when you're a writer is that people send you an incredible amount of books for free and almost to the point of what am I going to do with all these and having to get rid of them. Luckily, we have, I live in London now, and at Kilburn Station, there's a library exchange where you can just take books down and I'm doing it all the time, taking the books that I don't want to keep down and somebody else has them. I love that. That's a lovely model of free exchange. But on the books I do love and want to keep and have in many cases lived with now for 40 and 50 years. I think I do it by nationality, by cultural coherence. So I've got a sort of Russian shelf mm. and an African shelf yeah. and a couple of Irish shelves. Yeah. That's odd, isn't it? It's like That's a car- not it's cartography. Not, it's, it is, and it's not you know, consistent. I Obviously, I haven't got a British shelf because that's all the rest. So in other places, it will be these writers, and it's kind of these writers that I think that way about these writers mm-hmm. i'm very close to their work it's they're mm. in a special place yes. and then actually we have this cottage in somerset and it's oh those writers that i quite like but i don't care about. they go down to somerset so don't actually i probably shouldn't say that because then i'll have friends them. coming to stay in somerset thinking there's my book on the shelf <laughs> of the book she doesn't care for so mm. much anyway it's not a system i've really worked out it's been no. arrived at in an impromptu way. And do of you years. need because we're talking about the tactileness? Do you read ebooks? I don't. I, I mean, I have on occasion, but really, I don't like them. No. I'm perfectly happy with them existing. They're another way of reading, and young kids are so electronic. But mm. actually, the truth is about the market is that it's simply plateaued, and nobody yes. now thinks that. Physical books are going to be replaced by ebooks. Yeah, having not been in Britain, it's not going to happen. Mooted as the second company yeah, or the yeah, new, the right. new uh, Vanguard. That didn't happen because the book is a perfect technology, portable, physically attractive, mm-hmm. incredibly good to read. Whereas an electronic book, you don't, for instance, know how far away you do know how far through the book you are by a horrible little line. But it's not the same as feeling the pages under your hands, sticking something in there, turning a corner down. I've no doubt there's some horrible electronic thing (laughs) called turn the corner down. That's (laughs) not not as good. So everything about a physical book works to a reading experience with perfection, so much better than scrolls. This invention of the codex that is the kind of book we read is a genius in itself. And it's here to stay, and I love them, and fine with e-books, but myself, I very rarely read them. Don't like them. Agreed. Well, I'm, you're preaching to the choir, Asha. <laughs> okay, so for a child who was obsessed with, with the systems of library books, that is just not how it works in my house. So I've got quite a large house, and in my back room, I actually, when I bought the house, there was already a ready-made beautiful bookcase already built in, you know, glass windows Ooh, open. Lovely. So when I arrived, I stuck all of my books in there Mm. but out of sight out of mind because my children keep saying to me mum you need to do something with these books you are never going to read them again or you need to donate them or you need and they're right that I do need to because in my living room those are the books that I actually read so I have another Mm. bookshelf but I actually do it in order of size of the book. Yeah, well, <laughs> so I don't, yeah. I just like the, yeah. Yeah, the largest book Thick first books, and just, yeah, books. and I yeah. just make it go down yeah, yeah. to the smallest, tiny yeah. little pamphlets. Like yeah, yeah, inspirational yeah. pamphlets. And then <laughs> I, somebody gives me a book and then I shove it in. I think, oh, right, this is the size of the book. And that is how. Yeah. Well, if, so you, much- <laughs> if you do, you know, read them in one sitting, as you're saying, then that makes total sense. Thank you for letting me pry in that way. And if it's all right, we might go 
and browse as we're doing this trip down memory lane, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. And you could choose a book, Tessa, yes. from the shelves yes. of yes. Redland Library to see if Anne of Green Gables is still there. Oh. I've got a feeling she'll have been banished, but I'm hoping to no. be proved wrong. Well, let's go and see well, if she is. Let's go, let's go and see. Maybe not the exact same copy, but you never mm. know. Well, you never know. And then, yeah, we can see. I don't know if you'll still be on the system, but I'm sure they'll loan you But a book. I'm trying to remember who. I've just got it. Who wrote it, I was thinking, because we need to... It's L.M. Montgomery. Oh. I think I'm right. That just flooded back into okay. my mind. Okay. I wouldn't have known I knew mm. it, but I think that's right. Okay. Sounds right. Well, let's go and see. All Thank right. you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Ben. But the a librarian did say that somebody had taken out Anna Green Gables recently, right. so... I have one copy then. <laughs> right. Good. Good. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, that's brilliant. Is there anything else, Tessa, that you wanted to browse? Or the uh, famous line from this one was on my mind, rereading your work, The, the Past, past is, is a Foreign Country. Yeah, great line, isn't Such it? Fantastic Even though much quoted, but it remains so resonant. The go-between. Yeah, it's good. Wonderful. I'd love to reread that sometime soon. I do still love a library. Without a library, you can't go around the shelves having a look at what things are like. Oh, that's a very underrated book. That's oh, really? Absolutely super book. Early One Morning by Virginia Bailey. There we are. Now you're browsing for me, which wasn't really the idea. <laughs> I'll take that recommendation, thank you. Well, I'm sorry they don't have Anne of Green Gables. I know, I feel a bit just, it would have been lovely to find it. But they could order it in principle. Yes, yes. So and it, they had an Anne of Green Gables possible. party, which I think is almost better than yeah. finding the book yeah, yeah. itself. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Ex Libris. If you've made it this far, chances are you've enjoyed some of this episode featuring superb Tessa Hadley. So please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your brain food. That way, you'll help us champion libraries. You can win signed copies of not one, but three of Tessa's novels, including the brilliant Late in the Day, via social media. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at thatbenholden. To see those handsome photos of Redland Libraries yesteryear that we were admiring and discover loads more about this show, please visit our website, exlibrispodcast.com. Ex Libris is produced by Chris Sharp and myself. Its music is composed and performed by Adam Pleath. Ex Libris is brought to you in association with the Lightbulb Trust, which illuminates lives via literacy and learning, providing opportunities to shine. Until the next time, see you at the library.